0: Hi FM 101.9 megahertz of life. Good afternoon and welcome back to Soul to Soul right here 101.9. Hi FM, I'm Rabbi Ari Kiman. It's great to be with you here today. And we just began the nine saddest days on the Jewish calendar. This is a time when we practice semi-morning, no eating meat, or drinking wine. Or many of the other observances that I'm sure you heard yesterday with other of the soul to soul talks. But today I just want to look at another perspective of this period. Going all the way back to the very first Tisha B'Av in Jewish history and seeing how we can implement and learn lessons for our own lives that can hopefully help us to overcome our personal challenges, struggles, difficulties that we may be going through during these challenging times. So I want to go into the Gemara Tractate Tainus, Dav Chav Beis. And there, the Gemara gives us a little bit of the history of Tisha B'Av We know on B'Av many sad events occurred in our history. But let's go back to the very first one, which is described in the book of Ba'midbar, and again in this week's parsha, in the portion of Devarim, and relates how when the 12 spies returned from scouting out the land of Canaan, before the Jewish people were to go there, they frightened their fellow brethren, they frightened the rest of the Jewish people. And we know that there were two good spies, Caleb and Yehoshua, Caleb and Joshua. They were the ones who had the positive report, whereas the rest of them came back with a very pessimistic and negative report. And they come back and they tell the Jews, we came to the land that you've sent us. And indeed, yes, it does flow with milk and honey. And they gave samples of the fruit. However, they said the people who dwell there are giants, they're strong, and the cities are very fortified and great. And they went on describing all of the challenges and obstacles, and they came to a conclusion. We cannot go up against these people. They are mightier than we are. And there's two important points that stand out here. First of all, that was not the mission they were sent on. Indeed, they were sent to scout out the land. Moshe asked us to determine how we can, how we are able to conquer the land of Israel that God promised us. Not if we can. And I think it's a general perspective on life that we have to have. And that perspective is, how can we overcome this adversary? How can we achieve the success that we are looking to overcome in our lives. Yes, there are obstacles and there are challenges, but the question is not if we can overcome them. The question is how we can overcome these obstacles. As General Montgomery once put it, the difficult we do immediately, the impossible might take a little bit longer. Well, let's continue just reading a few of the verses that put everything into perspective in the context of what's going on here. The spies, at least the 10 who were giving the negative report, they went on to tell everyone else, the land we passed through to explore is a land that consumes its inhabitants. and The people we saw are men of stature. They went on describing the, the giants and then the verse that stands out to me most, is the one where they say that we saw, um, what did they say? They said, in our eyes, we seemed like grasshoppers. And so we were in their eyes. And I think that is a very, very telling verse because that was their own self perception that they were projecting onto the inhabitants of the land. Why it will be impossible for them to actually be able to conquer the land. Because we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. How do you know what you're like in their eyes? Well, the conclusion we know the Torah tells us is that everyone was upset and they were crying and complaining and they raised their voices and they shouted and they rebelled and they complained to Moshe and Aaron and they said, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if we had died in the desert... Why does God bring us to this land to fall by the sword where our wives and children will be as spoils? Is it not better for us to just go back and be slaves in Egypt? So this is a very, very sad perspective. And the Gemara teaches us that these spies who were sent to scout out the land more than a month earlier, they came back from their espionage journey their mission with a report on what day on the 8th of Av when did all this weeping and crying happen on the night of the 9th of Av on Tisha B'Av. God declared to them you weep today in vain I'll give you reason to cry for generations to come that's the story and maybe it sounds similar sometimes a parent or a teacher tells the kids the students children cry for no reason, I'll give you something to cry about. But God, I mean, did God behave that way? We know that indeed, Tisha B'Av has become the saddest day of our year. It's a day of, of, of sorrow, of tears. We lament the terrible calamities that occurred on this day throughout our history. So many terrible, tragic events that happened throughout history on this day. And Jews have been crying ever since. These nine days of mourning, which climax on Tisha B'Av. But God's response seems very petty and unfair. Just because someone cries in vain, is that a reason to penalize them, to punish them, to make them cry forever, for generations to come, to feel real pain? Well, is that the way God acts? This this doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem right. Just because someone weeps over delusional misery, is that a reason to take revenge, to exact retribution, to make them suffer real misery? With with real pain and suffering ever since? What's the connection between the two? How could those vain tears warrant such a dramatic punishment that for all generations this would become a night, a day of tears, of grieving, of sorrow as we know Tisha B'Aviz. And the Talmud explains that this was not actually a punishment but rather a prediction. It's A natural It's just the way life is That there are There are Tragic ramifications For consequences Of our behavior And so it was then They were crying in vain But that crying in vain Is what's going to cause them to cry for generations Why? And this is a fascinating insight from the Talmud That we could all learn in our own lives And apply during these difficult challenging times That we are enduring why were the Jews weeping that night? Because they saw a hopeless and doomed future for, this, for themselves, for their children. They've been through so much. Imagine all the struggles and challenges they experienced in Egypt as slaves. And finally they made it out. They were liberated. They were emancipated from their hardships. And now they meet their cruel deaths before coming into the land of Israel. Is that what they wanted? There's something strange here. Now, the truth is, as the Gemara points out and reminds us, of all generations throughout history, it's actually that generation which was the most saturated of miracles. No other generation experienced the wonders and miracles as did the one that left Egypt. Think about their experience. Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth at that time. And they had to, they were forced to free their slaves. As the Torah describes, the Yad Chazakah with a mighty hand, we celebrate every year, Pesach, we recall, right? We commemorate that. How God inflicted the 10 supernatural plagues upon them. And when Pharaoh's armies pursued them, seven days later, the sea split for them. And what happened? The Jews went through on dry land, and the Egyptian pursuers drowned. And then again, look at what happens in the, in the desert. Miracles were the stuff for the daily lives. Mana from heaven was the daily bread. Miriam's well, a miraculous stone which traveled along with them that provided water every day. Miracles, left to right, the clouds of glory that, that the, the, the Ananiya covered, that sheltered them from the desert heat and from the cold and kept them clothed and, and destroyed the snakes and scorpions in the path and flattened the terrain before them and on their way and was their GPS system of that time. And they had the pillar of fire to keep them warm at night. And all the miracles that the Torah describes and and to top it all off, they were the nation that witnessed the only time in history, the the revelation of God Himself at Mount Sinai, sharing with them the ultimate truth of existence, the Ten Commandments. For these people to doubt God's ability to conquer the mighty inhabitants of Canaan, now that seems ludicrous. So that's the challenge. That's putting everything into context, as we always have to actually see the details, the before, the after, to understand and put it onto perspective. For those people to think that they cannot go against the mighty Canaanites, to think that they were mightier—not just in themselves, but than God—for a people that ex- that witnessed and experienced, not hearsay, but personally the wonders and miracles of that time for those people to lose their faith. But that's the power of fear. It's not always rational. Sometimes fear is more powerful than all previous success stories that a person has experienced. The fear may be baseless from a rational or an empirical point of view, but that doesn't prevent it from paralyzing someone, from freezing one in their tracks. FDR was correct when he said, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. This is what happened to our people on that fateful night of the ninth of Av. Despite all compelling evidence that they can do it, that God is with them. Despite the fact that God, the singular master of the world, instructed them to do it, to say you're going to the land of Israel flowing with milk and honey. But they were overtaken by fear. And they concluded that their future was bleak and cruel, that they were powerless, that they could do nothing but weep. Their weeping in vain on that night was not the reason for the punishment. It was the factor that revealed what might come in the future. They wept in vain because they did not appreciate that God was with them. And God had given them the power to confront their challenges, to overcome their obstacles. When a person loses sight of their inner spiritual power, that's when we become victim to forces and people beyond our control. And that's what gives real reason to cry and to cry for real. You know, there was an interesting experiment that was conducted a couple of years back. And Psychology Today published this Experiment that was conducted by a Harvard psychologist, Dr. Robert Rosenthal. He conducted this on a group of students and teachers that were living in Jerusalem, of all places. The experiment was very interesting. They took a group of physical education teachers and students, and the students were randomly chosen, and they were randomly divided into three groups. In the first group... The teachers were told that the previous testing indicated that all the students had an average ability in athletics and an average potential. The teachers were told, go and train them. The second group of teachers were told that their students, their group, based on previous testing, exhibited an unusually high potential for excellence in athletics. Go and train them. And the third group of teachers were told that their group of students based on previous testing, exhibited an extremely low potential for any athletic training. Go and train them. The teachers were given several weeks to work with and interact with their student athletes. And at the end of the training period, the results were the same for all male and female students and for all male and female teachers. All the students who had been randomly identified as being rather average in their athletics abilities, they performed above average on the tests and all those who were randomly identified as above average performed even, sorry, those who were randomly chosen as about average, they performed about average. And those who were above average performed above average. And those who were, so to say, randomly selected as below average, again, They performed marginally and the results of the test indicated that the teachers thought that their students ability or the students themselves even perceived this based on the teacher's perception and everyone went along and that's how the, that's how well they performed based on the perception of themselves. So psychology today took special note of this experiment because it confirmed in the physical arena what psychologists were claiming to be true in the educational and emotional arena for a long time. The concept of self-fulfilling prophecy. Students in classrooms, workers in shops, patients in therapy, they all do better when the person in charge expects them to do well. When they themselves expect to do well one's own self-esteem, one's own self-image, what someone thinks of themselves and thinks himself capable of is an extremely crucial factor in deciding what can be. And therefore, that person lives up to those expectations like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the way we see ourselves plays an important role in the way others see us as well. The Jews at that time, they saw themselves as grasshoppers in their own eyes. And so they were in the eyes of the natives in the land. How you see yourself, others will see that in you too. We'll be right back. Chai FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. Again, I am Rabbi Ari Kiedman, and today we're talking about the first Tisha B'Av, which led to the saddest day on our calendar, and discussing some insights, ideas, reflections, things that we can apply in our life. And we talked about that original Tisha B'Av, how that day, the ninth of Av, is the day of national calamity, and why is it? Well, we discussed how the first event, was where they cried for no reason, and then God gave them a reason to cry. But what's more is, if we look at it, it's something in our own lives as well, that we realize that we have these self-fulfilling prophecies. So let's just look. Yesterday was Rosh Chodesh, first day of Av. And now we are going through these nine days. And Tisha B'av is the conclusion of this period of the nine days. And it's, there's various laws that we discussed. Whether, I mean, the most important thing is not just to think about the mourning itself. It's it's what are we achieving with mourning. It's a time, not just of heightened grief, but it's about personal self-introspection. And that's why there are the various customs and laws, like not eating meat or drinking wine or leisure trips and swim, all those different things. But why the number nine? What's the relevance? What's the significance of this number nine, nine days? Now let's look at the makeup of a human being. Every soul, as Kabbalah teaches us, has ten faculties, ten divine attributes. And through these ten, it's what our soul expresses itself in within ourselves. Now the first three are cognitive ones, you might be familiar with the name Chabad, that's the organization that I very much involved in our seniors programs at Chabad House. Chabad is actually a philosophy. It's an acronym of three words. Chachma, Bina, Das wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Those are our three cognitive faculties. The three uh, call them the three um, divine attributes of our intellect. Then there are seven emotional ones. Chesed, which is our loving kindness. Gevurah, discipline. Then Chesed, compassion. Netzach, which is endurance. Hod, humility. Yesod, which is bonding. Those are the first nine. But the final one is Malchus. What is Malchus? Malchus is a profound sense of literally means majesty, but it's, it's more than just majesty. It's that dignity that every one of us has. It stems from the divine image in which we were all created. It's the feeling that you matter, that you have the power to achieve anything that you set your mind to. Malchus represents the feeling that there's something eternally special about your life as a child of God, that you have a soul which is absolutely sacred and divine. And your inner value cannot be compromised. It's the fact that you are indispensable to God's plan for this world's existence. If we want to contrast that, what's the root of all destruction? It's the annihilation of Malchus. When the dignity of a human being, when this dignity is violated, when we're left with only the nine days, with nine faculties, lacking our inner sense of dignity and worth, that's where there's self-destruction. Once that part of you, your your purest element, that sense that feeds your sense of self-value, if that is compromised, then it's just a matter of time before life begins to spiral downward out of control in one form or another. And sadly, for some it takes on that shape of raw dysfunctionality. They become addicts. Some people are creative enough to find ways to remain functional, maybe say functional addicts to some extent. And they learn how to cover their tracks as they maneuver their way day to day overcoming this lack of self-worth. And there are so many variations of different types of, you know, people who experience this. Seeing someone use their creative juices, not just their energy and time and money wasted for such Addiction, so sadness, it's really hard to, to see. And when you think of bullies and people who are arrogant, oftentimes it's a cover-up for actual low self-esteem. It's a weak sense of their malchus, of their self-dignity, realizing they're indispensable to God's plan. Even if we all have all the other nine faculties in place, right? You got plenty of wisdom, knowledge and understanding. And your love and discipline and your compassion and endurance and all that humility and all the all the nine faculties are in place. But that's only nine. Like the nine days, the nine saddest days of the calendar that we commemorate now. Without the tenth, the most important dimension, Malchus, we are missing the foundation of all of life our inner security, our self-worth, the dignity that makes all the other non-worthwhile. And so, the malchus, that dignity is the most important aspect and element that we need to ensure in ourselves and those around us. And perhaps you could say that this is the essence of Tisha B'Av. Not just on a collective national level, but each of us as individuals as well. The loss of our of our royalty, that majesty and liberty. It's the confusion and depression created over our sense that I'm not worthwhile. That God perhaps is not interested in me. That we're lost in a big jungle and who knows what. We have to realize that we're created. 18 years ago, I went with Howard Juter and a couple of others as a yeshiva bacher here, went to Kruger National Park. And it was my first time experiencing the jungle in such a magnificent way. It was a, a great experience. But I want to share with you something that Howard told me then in the car. And Howard, if you're listening, Hillel, thank you for that lesson because it's a significant lesson for life for all of us. And he was telling me that there was a time when Kruger which I guess is still the case. I don't know my geography that well. But Kruger, we know, spans three countries, besides for South Africa, Botswana, that Kruger Park, they used to have fences actually at the borders between the countries. And what happened was that at one stage, I don't know how many years back, they decided to take those fences down. And when they did so, something fascinating happened. You see the elephants that were born, that were being raised there in Kruger, knew that there's a fence, there's a wall. And don't go past that fence because you might get electrocuted, you might hit barbed wires. And so it became ingrained in their minds that you just don't go to that wall. That's what happens. Now, there are new elephants that are born. But somehow, it remains part of their developed belief system. Not to go past those fences, because they'll get hurt. So they stop trying, they give up. Nobody goes there. And as a result, as they become adult elephants, and as they have their children, they don't even try to go in that direction, because they are programmed to believe that their efforts would be useless, would be in vain. They simply don't try because the memory of trying as babies is their main program. And as huge adult elephants, they still don't try because they're held in prison by those beliefs. But my friends, that little anecdote that Howard Uter shared with me, I think is very true about the elephant inside each of us as well. The spies declared we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, so we were in their eyes. And as a result, The nation wept in vain. The spies caused them to perceive themselves as hopeless, as small as futile grasshoppers. And so they also came to believe that everyone looks at them as grasshoppers. When you think you're weak, you believe that everyone considers you the same and you become meek and timid and paralyzed as well. And so a very important message is how we perceive ourselves is how others will perceive us too. Hi FM 101.9 Megahertz of Life Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm Rabbi Ari and we've been talking about the Tisha B'av, the original Tisha B'av, and and our self perception, what causes ourselves to lose faith in ourselves, and how that Leads to our own self-destruction, which sadly was the cause of the temple's destruction. But let's talk about this Shabbos now. Previously, yesterday, when I tuned in here to Soul to Soul, Rabbi Katz spoke about Shabbos Chazon. It's a Shabbos of vision. And he gave you the beautiful metaphor from our Levi Yitzchak of Bar-Dichib about this Shabbos. I want to just take a few points from that to conclude today's discussion. Because we ask any mainstream learned Jew Why this Shabbos is called Shabbos Chazon, And of course they will tell you Look at the opening words of the Haftarah this week Chazan Yeshayahu The vision of Isaiah the prophet That predicts the destruction of Jerusalem And this Haftarah and the vision Is perhaps the harshest Haftarah That we read throughout the year Where Isaiah for the very first time Prophesizes the destruction of Jerusalem The entire country following the moral degeneration Of our ancestors and he uses words such as an ox knows his owner and a donkey its master, only Israel does not know God, and describing how the land is desolate and the cities are burned with fire. How has this faithful city Jerusalem become like a harlot? I mean words that we read in lamentations as well now. The thing is, as Rabbi Katz said yesterday, there's another perspective of Shabbos Chazon that is the Hasidic perspective that Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of have taught. What is that perspective? It's on this Shabbos that every one of us has shown a vision, a mini-prophecy of the third and future temple that will be built in Jerusalem, please God. Now, it seems very contradictory. On the one hand, we have Isaiah's vision of destruction and Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, a vision of rebuilding. Have the Hasidim changed Judaism yet again? How could Rabbi Levi Yitzchak a Barditchev interpret the very same name, Shabbos Chazon, which some people don't even wear Shabbos clothing on the Shabbos, which is not the prevalent custom, but just to, just to illustrate to what degree the, the mourning, the pain is felt are we commemorating the tragic events of the temple destruction as is recorded in halacha, we're supposed to be do it? How could the Hasidic movement come along and give a different idea? You know, it sounds very romantic about a future rebuilding. It seems to contradict, to distort the actual facts. But as I said, we cannot be stuck in wallowing in grief in pain and sorrow. If you go in your car, you see, and if you're in your car right now, you'll notice your rear view mirror is much smaller than the windscreen in front of you. Because your front window is looking ahead. Yes, you have to sometimes glance at the past. That's true. And so the Talmud tells us a fascinating little story. It says that in the day that the temple was destroyed, there was a Jew plowing this field in Israel when suddenly his cow mooed loudly, moo! It was an Arab passing by, and he heard the mooing of the cow. Now this fellow, he understood the language of animals. So the Arab says to the Jew, bar Yahud bar Yahud, son of Judah, unyoke your cow, free the stake of your plow, your temple has been destroyed. And now the Jew is in mourning. All of a sudden the cow louder again a second time. And this Arab who understood the language of cows turn, turns to him again, Bari Yahud, Bari Ahud, son of Judah, yoke your cow, reset the stake of your cow, plow. Because your Redeemer has been born. What does this mean? The Talmud seems to be indicating that the very moment when the temple was destroyed, Mashiach is born. You're talking about 1950 years ago. Where is Mashiach? Where has he been hiding all these years? How old is Mashiach today? Is he in the, 1950 years? On Tisha B'av, what's going on? And very interestingly, it's this piece of Talmud that was presented by the Christians in Spain in 1263 in their public disputation that they imposed on the Jews then. And the debate, which was initiated in Barcelona by an apostate named Pablo Cristiani, a very uh, famed Spanish Um, apostate against Nachmanides, Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman by the way if you want, there's a video at Chabad House Library and everyone's welcome to borrow from the Chabad House Library, it's turned now into a mobile library at four weeks, so if you still have VHS, unless it was converted by now into a YouTube, just watch a film called The Disputation which will give you this Viko'ach Ramban with this Pablo Cristiani and Ramban himself was an elderly Jew at the time And he was forced to participate in this debate. And within this debate, you'll see how this story was brought as proof that the Messiah had already come as they believed. And Nachmanides discussed it at length. And he easily refuted their proof by showing that either way, their Messiah was long dead by the year 70. Okay? Obviously, it's a different story and maybe not for the radio earwaves. But I think with this story from the Gemara, we can understand another, another dimension to everything we've been discussing. It's well known that, you know, in Jewish law, not only are we bound to keep the halachas, but Almighty God Himself, who gave us these laws, are is actually bound by these laws too. Anyone who studies the Bar Mitzvah Mayer, there's a medrash from a to Tehillim where there's a verse in Tehillim that says, we say it every morning in Davening, that God shares His words with Jacob, with us, the descendants of our patriarchs and matriarchs. His laws and statutes with Israel. So these are also His laws, which God is obligated to observe the very same laws. So what's the question? If God is obligated by these laws, And the law is that you're not allowed to destroy even one little part of the temple. Not even a single stone of the temple courtyard is allowed to be destroyed. So how could God allow, not just allow, nothing just happens in the world. Not a holocaust, not anything, not a coronavirus, nothing happens by chance. God is instrumental in this. So how could God actually destroy the temple? Isn't that a violation of God's very law? Now, we know that the actual burning of the temple took place by the first temple by the Babylonians and the second temple by the Romans. but And and, and the Holocaust by Hitler and Machshima. God yet takes full responsibility. God is at fault for the Holocaust. God is at fault for the temple's destructions. And I'm not making this up. Don't shoot me. Look at the words of Jeremiah. The prophet himself says, we read it in the Haftarah. Behold, I shall dispatch the nations of the north and Ebru So God dispatches them. God calls them my servant. So despite the vicious intentions of these hate mongers, God used them as instruments to destroy the temple. That, at the end of the day, they are responsible for their actions, but they were God's instruments. How could God do that? If God has to abide by his very laws? And obviously, we don't have the time to sit here and expound too deeply. But, the answer is profound. There's only one way in which it's permissible to ever destroy a shore, And that is when the purpose is for renovation. You're rebuilding. I live in Santon Central. Here in Santon, at least before Corona, there was so much demolition going on and you'd see a big magnificent, magnificent building like Alexander Forbes knocked to the ground. And then you look at the beautiful new buildings that emerge in its place. And throughout Santon, we see this. You know, my shul, we started it exactly 10 years ago during the World Cup of 2010 a great time of pride here in South Africa. We started our shul as a little shtibol and village walk center. You might remember back then we had Chabad Books and Cafe 613 it was a great place. And just across it, we had a little shul and I was conducting daily menchamarevs and we were hosting visitors for the World Cup. And slowly it emerged from there into our beautiful shul that we have, Santon Central Shul, Chabad's goodness and Kindness Center, which is a beacon of light and great assistance to Jews throughout San who come before Corona, and please God, they'll be back soon for daily minyanim and for shiur and lectures and we have, we host visitors from all over the world we're a bustling Jewish community center we started off at Village Walk, you remember Village Walk? well Village Walk one day we were evicted and the building was knocked down and I thought to myself, you take such a Great shopping center, okay it had its problems and knock it down, but I live right here in Santon, right across the road, and I watched how from the rubble, from the demolition, what came out a beautiful new, magnificent center, the mark, as you could see, right here in the center of Santon. So if we go back to the laws of shules, when you're destroying a shul to rebuild it, then is the only time that it's allowed. If it's only in that place, otherwise you're going to have to first build a new shield before you're going to knock down the old one. Now all renovations consist of both of these phases. There's the demolition of the old and then there's the construction of the new. I saw how they took down, how they dismantled the old village walk in order to build the brand new one. You can't build a new building if you don't remove the old one. So our sages tell us, it was with God's destruction of the Holy Temple. The demolition itself was the beginning of a renovation for a future, a much greater, brighter future, a magnificent temple that won't even compare to the past. But what was missing with the previous temples? And So the Zohar, the fundamental work of Kabbalah explains that the first two temples were edifices built by human hands. And so they were subject to the mortality of everything human. As man is by definition limited, all of our accomplishments are also limited, finite. And so the temples were destroyed. Only by destroying the human temples was the groundwork laid for a temple that defies the limits of human mortality, a temple built by God Himself. That's indestructible. And with it we know comes Mashiach and a whole new era, an epoch of redemption to the world. When there'll be no more problems of sickness and death and all the other craziness that the world sees. So to make room for that divine structure, that's why the human structure had to be demolished. The demolition itself then is the first phase in the construction of the third and eternal temple. But, it's taking a little bit too long. So, we're limited in our time here. And the truth is, I'm oversimplifying a very complex concept. But let us just try to apply the message to our own lives. And let me provide three examples. Right? You know, what do they call it? The three, what are the three rings? The engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. No, just joking. God forbid. But there's engagement, there's marriage, there's honeymoon. Right? The first year is old, bliss, and suddenly... Marriage starts experiencing real life, reality kicks in. And sometimes there's frustration. And sometimes other challenges in a relationship. And one feels like, oh my gosh, what's happening to this marriage? Is it, the future's uncertain, we don't know what's going to be? How do you deal with the cracks? Do you just give up? Is it over? Now, you could see them as the end of a bright and blissful era. And all of a sudden boredom and anger and mistrust and all the problems of infidelity. God forbid. But if that is not the case, then you can go a little bit deeper and see a, a deeper perspective. That the cracks in a relationship can actually be the beginning of the renovation of this relationship. Think about this in business and so many aspects of life. Renovation, by definition, consists of both phases, the demolition and the rebuilding. When something is being destroyed, you could see it as destruction, or you could see it as creating the space for the new opportunity. The new village walk, the grand mark. The cracks in our life are what allow us to transform our relationships. For Yes, as human beings We have our frailties Our shortcomings Our challenges The problem with a marriage It's going through its rocks Its difficulties Despite the problems So long as there's no abuse in a relationship Then yes, it happens Last year, you're crazy about each other Now uninterested But let me tell you, as a medic, I look at an ECG, at someone's, uh, the heart monitoring, someone's heart function. And what do we see? Ups and downs. That's life. Life has its ups and downs. There are cracks. And the cracks are an opportunity to renovate, to fix our relationships. Now, you have to rebuild the relationship. And maybe make stronger foundations for it. Now it's time to recreate the relationship as a divine institution. And so I think the same can be applied to any aspect. You talk about, I know people have lost their jobs in the last few weeks, right? But some people have been able to go beyond that and see the new opportunities that came from this. So one might see it as a horrible destruction, their career is gone, how are they going to support their families? And that's tragic and difficult. But if you're able, if you have the resilience, if you have the malchus we discussed, if you have that dignity within you, then hopefully from the demolition, from the hardships, you're able to grow. And a much better future can come from this. And this is something we have to apply in every aspect of our life. Maybe this is time to dream far bigger than we have previously. That the breakdown is the birth of some grand new idea. And I think this is something we could all apply during this difficult time in our lives. So, yeah, maybe we were happy, maybe life was going well, and all of a sudden, depression, all of a sudden, we're going through that malchus, the dignities hit a low. Don't be overtaken by despair. Remember the message and lesson that our sages tell us about the destruction of the temple. That the cracks in our life is what will allow us to rebuild our inner core. Yes, till now, we were going through whatever vulnerable weaknesses we were having. But seize the opportunity to grow. When one door closes, another one opens. We need the courage not to lose our malchus, not to lose our self-worth. And to realize Herein lies the opportunity for new growth. And maybe with this we can understand the story of the double mowing of the cow. The first one expressed the destruction of the temple, but the second one was prophesying the birth of Mashiach. These weren't two separate detached events occurrences. The burning of the temple and the birth of Mashiach are not contradictory. Both events are essential to our existence. The destruction of the temple is also the birth of redemption. The demolition of the temple gives way for the rebuilding of the temple. Yes indeed, Tisha B'av is the saddest day on our calendar, it's the day when our temples went up in flames and so many other horrible national calamities that we mourn for and grieve for on this day. But within this very painful and horrific reality, we could see Another drama unfolding. And that is the future that lies ahead. So my friends, take the Hasidic perspective of the Shabbos. When you read the prophecy of Isaiah, of the doom and gloom and the destruction of the Temple, please also look at the beginning of the renovation of the bright future of the Third Temple. And that is the plot behind Jewish history. The vision that allows us to not only survive, but to thrive And let's welcome, please, God, a new dawn, a new era, where it won't just be post-corona, but a whole new future that is coming. Carpe Diem sees every moment. God bless you.